It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, Cheeky. Hello, you. I've taken to calling you Cheeky for no good reason when you call me. I quite like it. It's sort of got a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi. I'll keep it going then, Cheeky. Okay. Um, how how have you uh, managed with the beast from the east? Oh, this weather is a nightmare. Oh, isn't, isn't it nice? Look out the window. No. Look at everything's covered in snow. Doesn't it yeah, look pretty? I mean, we're recording this on the Thursday. Hopefully by Monday, this will all be a sort of distant dream. Bah humbug. You, you like it, do you? I do. And don't you like the fact that the weather has got a name, the beast from the east? Kind of. Because in a few years, so when was the last time it snowed in London? Can't remember. Exactly. You can't sit here and go, oh, do you remember the time it snowed? It's such and such. Now we'll be able to say in the future, do you remember the beast from the east? I lived through the beast from it's the east. It's just too cold and just horrid. Well, as they say in Scandinavia, no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. You just need an extra layer. That's all yeah, you need. Yeah. I don't suppose that's true. Well, I guess I won't be inviting you tobogganing after we finish then. Yeah, I'm not sure about the two of us on a sort of <laughs> toboggan. I think it, it could really go wrong. What, I mean, men, men of our advanced yeah, physicality. I just think... I think it's sort of, you know, the combination of my inanimate object problems, your people problems will sort of <laughs> end up, you know, sort of hitting a tree and then knocking over some children and goodness knows what. I don't think so. It's all a bit Laurel and Hardy. It is a bit, yeah. yeah. I want to sing You Can't Touch Me, I'm Part of the Union, but I don't know if we'd be allowed to with uh, with, with copyright laws. Do you know that song? Oh, it's an old song from the 70s. You Can't really? Touch Me, I'm Part oh, of the Union. Right. No, no, nothing. What about no. Billy Bragg? There's power in a union. Yes. There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the hands I of the workers. I was a miner. Here we go, I here we go. He's warming up now. Here we go. But the reason I mention all this is we're talking unions this week. Yes, we're talking unions. And, you know, I think it's, I'm really looking forward to this discussion that we're going to have because, you know, it's often the case when we talk about the problems of inequality and problems in our society, we talk about sort of, you know, issue solutions, which are important, minimum wage, living wage. I don't de- you know, denigrate them at all. They're absolutely fundamental. But there's a 
there's, if you like, a more overarching issue of power and who has power in the workplace. And you, su- such an establishment institution as the International Monetary Fund did, so the IMF did some research in the last couple of years where they said that weaker unions had led to greater inequality. Maybe you could expect that. But also there was a direct link between weaker unions and top people having more money. In other words, they were they were able to scoop more of the rewards because working, you know, average working people were weakly represented, didn't have unions and weren't able to, you know, enjoy the rewards themselves. And is part of that if uh, some if you've got strong unions, one of the things that goes up is productivity and then with productivity profits go Partly up as well. Partly that, but also right. pay, who gets the proceeds, who gets the, you know, when money is generated in companies, who get who gets the money? Is it just the top or is it other people? So there's obviously a massive issue about inequality. Um, and the weakness of unions, and we've seen a big weakening of unions across Britain, America, and and some other uh, industrialised countries over the last 20, 30 years. There's a big issue about risk. I, the way I think about this is the old sort of post-war bargain was that sort of risk was shared. So, you know, the government had a took some risk. So if you got made unemployed, you got a decent, you know, income to support you. Employers took some risk to sort of gave you some security of contract and the employee took some risk as well. Now all the risk is being loaded onto employees. Right. You know, you, you sort of feel very vulnerable. You don't have worker protection. You don't have a union to protect you. So who bears risk, I think, is a big question in the modern economy. And just the general powerlessness of people if they don't have representation. And we see this in the new economy with, you know, some of the new companies like Deliveroo or Uber or, or others. So I think it's really, really sort of pressing issue. And, and you know, what, what can be done? It, can anything be done? So how, how do you deal with the thing? I guess part of it is like unions, to a lot of people, they seem like a thing from a bygone era. There's been maybe a throwback to some people. Yeah, they, they do seem like that, you know, and I guess the press for years have portrayed them that way. And uh, the unions don't have the amount of power that they used to. And people point the fingers at the unions for some of the things. And maybe some unions aren't doing to. enough to reach out. I mean, it's one of the things we've got to discuss. Could Is there more they could be doing to reach out? What could government be doing? It's weird. It's like a dirty word to some people. Like, I remember, you know, you, you got accused of being in the pocket yeah, yeah. of the unions, like the unions yeah. are this sinister, oh, no, sinister thing. I know. I know. But so it's a really important and timely discussion. And we are joined by comedian Jake Yap, who's so funny. You might know him from Charlie Brooker's um, Screen Wipe and Weekly Wipe. He, he used to be on that quite often. He's done a ton of radio stuff. He's really funny, and he'll be coming along to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And what's yours? Uh, what's mine? How about, oh, I've got a Saturday job. I am on Saturday mornings for the next little while doing an interview series for a radio station. Now, the radio station is called Union Jack Radio, which you might hear and think, oh, God, that's a bit Brexity. Or you might think, yeah, that's a bit Brexity. It's not Brexity. It's British music and comedy. And I'm doing a show called Hometown Glory, in which I get comedians to take me on a trip down memory lane around the places they grew up. We use um, Google Maps and they will show me their old school and they'll show me their old house and tell me stories. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Matt Ford is the first one who's a very funny political comedian. Yes, and uh, I just did a podcast. Well, this is this him. is why I mentioned it. You were yeah. on his show last night. Yeah. How did that go? It went really well, I think. He does an impression of you. Did he did he do it in he front of you? Did. He was he, he was you know, he was nice. He what was, did you was, think of his impersonation though? Uh, quite good. And, quite and, good. And I, I hear whispers that you I did one of Tony Blair. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. 
No, Jeff, you know, come on. Uh, of course I can. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I spent a long time around him and, you know, I think we've got to just and the rest of it and sort of, you know, uh, treat this with the seriousness it deserves. You spent a lot of time around Gordon Brown, though. Can you do him? Oh, Jeff. <laughs> oh, we've got a problem. Oh, I can't do him as well. So, so that's my reason to be cheerful. What's yours? So my reason to be cheerful is about what's been happening in America and the debate about guns. And out of a tragic, tragic situation, the number of gun deaths in America and a, you know, a specific horrific thing that happened in Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School a couple of weeks back where 17 people, including students, were, were killed um, by an, ex, an ex-student. And something very, very extraordinary has happened, which is the the normal course of events is that these things happen in america nothing happens not, nothing changes and thanks to the incredible eloquence and courage i think of the of the students at the high school they've started this movement led by students on the basis that the politicians have been completely useless and you know have done nothing and it's starting things are starting to move so public opinion has moved. So after the terrible Las Vegas shooting, in which more than 50 people were killed, that was last October, uh, only 53% of Americans said that uh, gun laws should be tightened. Now now 70% say that gun laws should be tightened. And just in the last few days, two of the nation's leading gun sellers, Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods, have said they're going to limit their sale of firearms. They're going to stop selling guns to anyone under the age of 21. Now, this may seem like pretty bloody basic to us, but in America, there hasn't been new gun legislation, I think, for 20 years. And the the man who runs Dick's Sporting Goods, Edward Stack, the 63-year-old chief executive, whose father founded the store, said what we saw, what happened in Parkland, that's where the school is. We were so disturbed and upset. We love these kids and their rallying cry. Enough is enough. It got to us. And this is, I mean, I think there's something extraordinary about this, which is Barack Obama tried to do something about this. Bill Clinton tried to do something about this, briefly was able to, but then obviously left office. But, you know, where, where they didn't properly succeed, these kids are starting, and I emphasize starting, to make a difference. You know, I don't take it, I take it with with absolutely heaps of salt, but even Donald Trump, so aware is he of the media cycle and the fact that the media cycle is still on this issue, he's even starting to make noises about wanting to do something. And so out of a terrible tragedy, I think, you know, these young people are are showing, you know, that, that things can change. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So with us, we have Antonia Bantz, Head of Campaigns and Communications at the TUC, Nat Wally, Executive Director of the Organised Platform, and Joe Dromey, Senior Research Fellow at the IPPR. Hello, everyone. Hi there. Hi. Hello. Joe, can you tell me what the IPPR is? Uh, we're the Institute for Public Policy Research. We're a, a progressive think tank. So so let's talk about unions. Can, can we talk about the nature of the problem that unions face today? And, and probably, Antonia, you're the good person to start on this one. Well, 
Trade unions, we've been around for about two centuries now. We were forged mainly in the white heat of the Industrial Revolution um, back in the middle of the 19th century. And what we what we existed for then and exist for now is to bring together groups of workers um, because working together as a group, the workers can balance the power of the boss over their lives at work. So that's what it's all about. It's about workers getting together um, in a union to negotiate collectively on things like pay, working hours, whether their workplace is safe enough, whether they get a decent pension and whether mums and dads get decent rights at work. At its heart, that's what the union movement is about. Over the last couple of decades, uh, we saw unions uh, begin to lose membership over time. We were at our peak uh, just after the Second World War and through the 60s. Um, But for a number of reasons, unions have begun to lose membership over the last couple of decades, which is why we end up having conversations like this. Uh, But I guess the thing that I would say to start off with is that it's not because the world of work has suddenly become a great place and everyone's Mm. happy, everyone's paid a decent wage and everyone has decent terms and conditions that unions aren't needed anymore. Unions definitely are needed now. Nowadays, And the challenge now is to work out how unions need to be so that they meet the challenges that face today's workers. And, and Joe, can you give us any more on the, the decline that Antonia talks about? Can you give us any more on what, what the reasons behind that? Yeah, I, I think there's, first of all, it's, it's a contested uh, question. There's lots of um, different views on it. I think the, the reasons fall probably broadly into three uh, categories. The first is about um, economic change. So the decline of sectors which have been traditionally uh, relatively uh, well organised. Um, so the decline of the, the public sector from about 3 in 10 to 2 in 10 uh, employees, the decline of uh, heavily unionised areas of the uh, private sector, and conversely the growth of sectors which have traditionally been you know, not very uh, organised, not very much uh, union density. Um, the other factor people point to is about kind of changing uh, attitudes, changing kind of social norms. Um, supposedly the kind of rise of uh, individualism and the uh, decline of collectivism. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit kind of sceptical on that. And, uh, you know, polling still shows very widespread support for uh, the union movement and f- uh, kind of recognition of the importance of unions in representing working people, uh, even though membership has has declined. And I think the other factor which we, we can't ignore is um, government policy. So the uh, kind of sustained uh, and ideologically driven a kind of government uh, attack on the union movement uh, under the kind of Thatcher and, and major governments, um, which has kind of precipitated the, the very significant decline in, in union membership that we've seen. And Nat, the organised platform, can you, yeah. can, you, can you explain what that is and how that plays a part in this? Sure. Um, so I founded Organised less than a year ago, uh, and we're a digital platform that helps people join together to take action in their workplaces. So we do three cool things. One, we give people the tools to take collective action. We help them build a network, and we give them the confidence to kind of take those actions and build power in their workplaces. So when Joe talks about changing social attitudes, and you sometimes hear unions talked about as if they, they belong in the past, that's not that's certainly not your experience. Well, absolutely not. And I think what's really interesting is um, we've got so many tools available now that those sort of founders of the trade union movement, 200 years ago would have killed for Mm. so things like whatsapp and facebook it's never been easier to talk to people in real time across industries across sectors and unions need to be taking advantage of those to help people take action in real time and share the information they have collectively to yield power as part of this sort of problem challenge and obviously the problem challenge is, is is very big how much is there a problem of relevance particularly for younger workers in terms of unions i mean how much do people just sort of think you know unions that doesn't that's 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 irrelevant to me. 
Almost like it's become a like those those thatchy years or something made it a, a dirty word. Yeah, or it's, or yeah, and it's just not in the sort of bloodstream. There's like there's an age gap of people. People who remember the sort of the seventies and eighties have a certain perception of unions. People who don't don't really have a view at all. So they don't have a negative perception of unions. They just don't know what unions do. Um, so there's a huge opportunity for the union movement to re-engage these people because they're prime for the taking. They understand collective power. And and what I would say is um, I think. If you look around, we can still see that there are a lot of places and a lot of workers where unions are still delivering the change that they were set up to do. Um, so you, you go and look at um, the situation that young teachers find themselves in. Um, you would see very, very high member levels of union membership amongst young teachers, uh, comparable with older teachers in that profession, uh, because there's a real understanding of what being a member of a union brings, both to your professional side of your work, but also to you as a working person and you would choose to join a union if you worked in that profession. You can also see unions really beginning uh, to move out of some of their manufacturing heartland, which is where they've traditionally been strong and in public services, um, and into some of our more service-orientated industries. I particularly draw attention to some of the brilliant work that some of our big unions have been doing. Unite, for example, in places like Sports Direct, a huge warehouse up there in Shirebrook, full of migrant workers on terrible agency contracts without guaranteed hours of work, where you had things going on like ambulances being called uh, because someone had given birth in the loos at their workplace because they were too frightened to take time off. Unite has steadily been building membership up there at that workplace. It's been um, challenging the management on behalf of those workers. Thus far, it's won back more than a million pounds in national minimum wage underpayments for those workers in that workplace. And it's dragged the head of that company up to Parliament to account for himself. Now, I'm not saying everything's brilliant in that workplace yet, but they are putting on members and putting on members. And over time, uh, we'll begin to see changes in places like that. Similarly, the Baker's Union at McDonald's, what colleagues in the GMB are doing at Amazon, at Uber, in Addison Lee places where you've seen their names on the front pages of the newspapers but it's patient hard union work by organisers challenging bad practice challenging illegal practice in some cases and helping workers organise for a better deal I think there's there's reasons to be positive uh, both in terms of the fantastic work which a lot of unions are doing in, in, in bucking this wider trend which Antonia highlights um, but also in, in, in the attitudes of uh, working people towards trade unions so um, you hear some people say that uh, you know that they are uh, kind of going out of fashion, that they're kind of for a bygone age. But if you if you look at the there's a regular poll done um, of working people by Ipsos Murray, and it shows that record high levels of support for the view that unions are, are vital uh, to working people. And strangely, the, the highest level of support is among young workers who are currently the least likely to join um, trade unions. So there's very strong support for the union movement. Um, suggests a kind of rich potential for unions to to recruit um, these workers. But it's just about that challenge of um, convincing working people in these sectors which are traditionally very poorly organized about the you know why it's of benefit for an individual to to join a trade union but there's there's lots of good work going on in this area particularly the stuff antonio's doing at tuc um and lots of potential can i ask a question that i suspect that i'm the only person around the table who doesn't know the answer to no But when, when we talk about uh, the ways in which unions have been curbed over the past, say, say couple of decades, how, how has it changed um, both for employees in terms of their rights and what being a union can mean to them, what they're allowed to do, and, and the flip side of it, um, sort of employers and how much attention they need to pay to unions and so on? 
So I, I guess what I would say is beginning in the 1980s, coming right through to the most recent Trade Union Act, which passed uh, by the previous Conservative government in 2016, there have been a range of attempts uh, by Conservative governments in particular uh, to uh, crack down on unions organising. Um, this most recent act in 2016, for example, brought in arbitrary rules for the hurdles that a union has to jump um, in order to have a legal ballot for strike action. Um, it introduced a load of extra bureaucracy and red tape about how unions spend their money and how they fund the union regulator and all sorts of other petty restrictions. None of it was aimed at helping us get solutions and resolution to problems in the workplace more quickly, which is what you would expect governments to be worried about. None of it was aimed at helping unions get stronger so that we can raise the floor of those low wages because we know that trade unions and strong trade unions in a country are one of the best ways that there is to raise wages and reduce inequality in that society. The big priority for us um, at the moment is to make sure that the law is changed so that we get a right of access to every workplace. Getting into workplaces is the key to helping us get more members, helping us organise those members, getting into those collective um, negotiations that are the things that will raise wage rates, sort out bad terms and conditions. And what are the basics? Like, Does, it, does a, a, a workplace need to be a certain number of employees? So anyone can join uh, a member, anyone can be a member of a trade union, the trade union of their choice. Um, but uh, what needs to happen is you either need to get voluntary recognition or you need to go through a legal process um, to make sure that your employer recognises that union. And it's at the point that you get that legal recognition, it's open to workplaces of all sizes, um, it's the point that you get that legal recognition, that you get that right to sit down at the table with the employer and bargain. And that's what we need. It's not just about individual members. It's about the number of workplaces that we've got in those collective agreements because they are what raises wages. And that's what we're in this game for. And we've seen some examples uh, of uh, employers kind of fighting tooth and nail to avoid uh, union recognition. Ryanair is, is, is one of them recently, which is um, only just come to terms um, with, with with its union, um, and uh, it, it raises the question that what what have they what have they got to be afraid of? Because right. decent employers have nothing to fear from union recognition, from sitting down with their employees and uh, and agreeing kind of terms and conditions and agreeing pay, um, which works for employees and works for the for the business too. Um, and you know the, you'll hear sort of talk in uh, in the right wing media about uh, inevitably around about now about kind of winter of discontent about kind of uh, militant kind of trade union leaders and it's both you know against the evidence we, we've got kind of record low levels of industrial action um, and it's not uh, supported by the vast majority of the public um, the public uh, you know by, by over two to one don't see trade union leaders as sort of militant or extremists um, they see them as as reasonable people who are trusted uh, more than journalists more than business leaders and more than politicians or podcast hosts. Um, uh, let me ask you this question, though, before we go on to solutions, which goes to this question of um, sort of what unions are about. I mean, you, you've both sort of been making the point, or Joe in particular was making the point, that it's about you know that, that employers have nothing to fear. Clearly, there is a history in this country, some of it perception granted, some of it sort of wrong, um, that it's all about confrontation. That it's and you know some of it is about confrontation when you've got an employer trying to screw over a worker, but 
how much of that how much is there a sort of cultural challenge about unions recognizing that most of their work is about sort of cooperation for the good of the company that they're working for and employers recognizing that too um, so, Ed, you said employers have got nothing to fear, but of course, bad employers have got a bunch to fear. Um, it's the good employers who've got nothing to fear. Um, and I guess what I would say is that when an Im- that being part of a union and perhaps threatening some an escalation of action, maybe threatening to go on strike, is a tactic a union would only use if the boss wouldn't come to the table, won't negotiate, won't compromise, won't talk to their own workers about why what they're proposing is the right thing to do. So it is a last resort. It's not one that unions use lightly. But I think it is really important that we should remember the vast majority of the day-to-day work that our trade unions do is representing members who are caught up in grievance or disciplinary. It's helping members who are at risk of redundancy. It's helping members sort out their pensions um, on a collective basis, safeguarding, making good decisions about that. And it's also a lot about um, helping union members get on in life. So we at the TUC, we're part of a partnership. It's called Union Learn. And Union Learn gets 250,000 people through courses brokered by their unions every single year We know this country's got a massive productivity and skills problem and unions really want to be part of the solution to that. Just one other thing on this before we go on. Um, I was reading these um, figures that Sweden has massively more union coverage, collective bargaining and all of that, very significantly higher. But when you look at the number of days lost to strikes, it was 234 in Sweden, the whole of Sweden last year. Okay, Sweden's a smaller country, and it was like over a hundred thousand in Britain. So, isn't that it's not that much smaller? Exactly, it's not that yeah. much smaller. So, isn't that an interesting thing that the unions are much more powerful in Sweden, but they don't need to resort to strikes? What? what how does one understand that? Well, I was um, I was recently speaking to a, a Swedish trade union who were expressing concern about the decline of union membership in Sweden. Uh, and I, I asked what it had reached, and I think it was about, they said about 70%. And what is it here? 25 uh, well, here. Yeah, and at which point I almost fell off my chair. The idea about being concerned about that level um, of, of, of union membership was, was interesting coming from where we're coming from. And and that's because um, unions in, in Sweden are seen as social partners. They're, they're part of the running of the economy. Um, they're involved in the uh, important labour market institutions. They work uh, on a kind of firm level with employers on addressing issues like training, um, uh, on productivity, on on workplace change. Um, And they are kind of seen as and act as responsible partners in improving conditions for for working people. And and that's why we need to disrupt this argument that um, higher union membership, which we need, and greater collective bargaining, which we need, would lead to industrial unrest. It, It doesn't have to happen. Should we move on to solutions? Now, the way I understand it, the organised platform is the sort of first stage, isn't it, into yeah. getting people engaged in unions. So do you want to say something about sort of what you do, how you use these new tools of the internet to overcome some of the problems we've talked about? Absolutely. Um, so I started organised because I had, um, you know, you sat in the pub with your mates. I've got a lot of friends who are frustrated in their jobs. They haven't had a pay rise in five years. One of them lost their job when she became pregnant. But they're not members of unions and they don't see options to take action. Um, and I'm a campaigner. So I use tools like online petitions, surveys to create change politically. And I was thinking about how do you take these tools that we know work in sort of a digital space into workplaces? What do you need to do to adapt those tools to get them to work? 
So that's why I started Organise. Um, and I think the key difference between us and trade unions is that, well, Antonio was talking about, you know, trade unions go in, they get an agreement, they represent workers. Organise is a set of tools to help people represent themselves. So we're not, And you're always going to need, um, you know, representation in work. So we're never going to replace unions in that sense. Um, but I see us as a kind of broad end of the funnel where we're helping people take their first steps. I almost see us a bit like a gateway drug. <laughs> so people feel their power, start to understand what collective, exactly, understand their collective action and how much impact they can have and then start to see escalations. Um, so one of the ways our campaigns progress through organised, say you start a petition. Um, it's democratic, so you vote on the next steps. And the thing I was most surprised about in our campaigns is the next steps that um, the people who work there are voting to do are quite high bar things. So we've got um, a bunch of Amazon workers in a warehouse who are voting to do a slowdown on the production line. That's where they want to take it. Or McDonald's workers, their next step, the thing they're gunning for is to go on strike because they've seen that it works. And can the Amazon workers, what happens if the Amazon workers do the slowdown? So this is the question. Is organised the best place for them to do that? Probably not. And that's where we need to be throwing people to towards unions but the question at the moment is are unions ready to catch these people right and take them on the next step and it, uh, does that part of that apply also to modern forms of the so-called gig uh, gig economy yeah. with uber and Deliveroo and so on Absolutely. So we've got a bunch of delivery workers and we're working with the IWGB union um, and thinking about how they can help them escalate their challenges around getting so basic rights like sick pay, holiday pay. Um, and one of the things we're looking at is doing things like microstrikes with push notifications. So sending out where you can speak to people in real time. Um, you know, you can, using those tools, talk immediately and say, right, for the next half an hour, everyone signs out of delivery. If they're self-employed, that's not illegal. It's not a wildcat strike because they're not employees. So thinking about how we can game some of those systems is really interesting. And presumably what you're overcoming is... The, the sort of massive isolation that so many tech workers feel yeah. because, you know, they're, they're classified as self-employed and we know there's a whole business about that. Um, they're not in a big sort of industrial space where there's automatically a union like there would have been 50 years ago. And yeah. so presumably that is a very isolating, atomizing experience. I think particularly where, um, you know, if you're not speaking to your colleagues around the water cooler or whatever it is anymore, you can feel like the problems you have are on your own and the power of joining the network, signing a petition, you're then, you know, in a bunch with like 2,000 other people. Being able to aggregate and share your experiences, you can then spot patterns and then use that data to advocate for change. I think that's where it gets really powerful. I wonder, Joe, whether you want to talk a bit about the Commission for Economic Justice that the IPPR is running and you're looking at some specific solutions around trade unions and what we can do to reverse this massive decline that there's been. Uh, do, do you want to say a bit about some of the ideas? Sure, yeah. So, uh, as you say, it's, it's part of our Commission on Economic Justice, which is looking at how we build a, a more sustainable uh, economy in which growth is, is fairly shared. And if that's your aim, then trade unions, uh, you know, the evidence would say is is one of the tools to help deliver it. Um, one of the things we're looking at is um, uh, auto-enrolment into trade unions. And, and this is um, building on uh, the fantastic kind of policy success that's been auto-enrolment with workplace pensions. Um, it may sound a bit far-fetched automatically enrolling people into trade unions, but so it would have with automatically get signing people up to pay into workplace pensions. Would that need government sign-off? It would, so yes. So it never happen under a Conservative government? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, I think... You know, our, we we will be making arguments to the to the current government that if they want 
um, higher productivity, if they want higher pay, if they want um, a more skilled workforce, then trade unions are their partners, not their And there are conservative voices, to be fair, who recognise this. I mean, they are a bit isolated, but they do, some of them do recognise it. They are indeed. Robert Halfen is um, uh, one in particular who's uh, got a long history of sort of interest in in the union uh, movement. Let's say a bit more about how it would work. So so for the pension, correct me if I'm wrong, you're sort of automatically enrolled in a in a pension unless you opt out exactly. of it. Yeah. Um and your employer has to take the necessary steps to contribute to your pension. So, on. so what's the parallel here so it would work exactly the same uh, i should say it's just one of the things that we're we're looking sure. at and it would obviously need to be trialed and it may not be appropriate for all areas of the work workforce um but what it would involve is very similar to uh, auto enrollment in pensions um, when you start at a uh, a new company um unless you choose uh, and make an affirmative choice to opt out um you'd be enrolled uh, as a, a trade union uh, member uh, your subs would be deducted from from your uh, payroll uh, and what we think, why we think this could make a big impact is the transformative impact that auto-enrolment of pensions has had and the evidence that there's widespread support for the trade union movement in the private sector. Um, three in four workers in the private sector say that unions are vital. But only 14% are actually in unions. Exactly, yeah. So what we think this could do is, is nudge, and it kind of builds on behavioural economics, and it could nudge workers in the direction of joining um, trade unions, which we think uh, is in their own interest and in the interest of a, a sustainable and a just economy too. And I, I, it's probably unfair to ask you for every last detail of this, but but because I know you you've got a paper coming out on it later in the year. But but so if you're automatically enrolled, presumably you would have to choose a union. I mean, you'd have to have a menu of choices of which union you could join. Yes. Yeah, so. Here's one of the challenges we're, we're trying to, to deal with. So there's a number of potential options. It could be that you are um, automatically enrolled in a union which is recognised by your employer, and that could potentially, uh, you know, act as an incentive to employers to recognise trade unions and to engage in collective bargaining. Um, it could be that you're given a kind of menu of of different unions that you could join. So uh, my partner's a teacher, and uh, they could be given uh, the option of. Uh, joining NAS.UWT or uh, the National Education Union um, with a kind of short blurb on, on, on a short kind of pitch from each about why you should join. Or potentially, and uh, we should probably also check this with the TUC. Um, <laughs> Now's the uh, moment to do it. Potentially. Uh, so the Fabians have recently done a report where the where they recommended the TUC could be like a clearinghouse for people joining the, the union movement. So potentially it could be uh, via the, the TUC uh, and then onto a sort of uh, a union in the in the industry. So Joe, there was something in that, that was in place until the 1980s called the closed shop, which meant that if you went into a particular workplace, you were forced into joining a particular union as I understand it. Just explain to us the difference between auto-enrolment and that. So the fundamental difference between auto-enrolment and a closed shop is that workers uh, would still have um, a right to uh, not be a trade union member. So um, we're not by any means suggesting that everyone within a certain employer would have to uh, be a a union member. But it just changes the default from the current, which is non-membership, to to being a member, um, unless a worker chooses to opt out. Um, It's worked absolutely fantastically with uh, workplace pensions. We've seen participation go up 37 percentage points. It's one of the real success stories of uh, of policy recently. Um, obviously, there's things that would have to be um, worked out about uh, how it would work in, in practice. And you would want workers joining the union of their choice rather than one which is selected um, by the boss. We're coming from the point of view that 
we are concerned about the decline of trade union membership and we believe that the state should be concerned about the decline of trade union membership. We know that workers um, support trade unions and recognise that they're important for representing workers' interests, but we know that membership has, in the private sector has fallen by two-thirds and continues to fall. So we think something needs to be done about it. I think uh, there's a fantastic amount of innovation in the union movement, um, kind of looking at changing uh, the offer to, to members, but we think that there's not a level playing field at the moment and one of the options that we think we should look at is auto-enrolment. And Antonio, tell us what you think. Don't feel you've got to sort of, uh, to, to, you know, give us a, a TUC position because I know the TUC is probably thinking about these issues. But t- tell us, Antonio, what you think could make a difference. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that could make a difference. What the TUC would like to see, um, we've got a couple of ideas. So... Um, one of the things that will be really, really good is to think about sector collective bargaining. Um, what that means is that means all the employees in a particular sector, their union representatives, their employers and the government come together and negotiate a set of terms and conditions, wages and a skills development offer that meets the challenges of that sector of the economy. It could work for perhaps, say, retail, a bit of the economy where there's high turnover of staff, lots and lots of small shops, so it's very, very hard to organise them into a union. You then make what that group of three, the unions uh, representing the workers, uh, the bosses and the government, they come to a view on what the wage rates should be, what the terms and conditions should be, what the skills offer, and you then make that mandatory on all employers in that sector. That would be a really good way to get past some of the challenges that we see in very atomised workplaces, full of zero-hours contracts, full of underpayment of the national minimum wage, where workers really struggle to get a voice. I, like That's the sort of thing that we will be interested in exploring. It was in the Labour manifesto in 2017, uh, and we've been thinking about how you might make that real. And do you think that can work? What would you say to the challenge of those who say that can't work in the modern economy because it's too... You know, that might have worked in the old fashioned world of, you know, in big industry and so on. But it's, you know, it's too atomized, it's too split up. I think precisely because it's atomized and split up, we need to think about how we choose, create solutions like that um, to take account of the way the economy works now. Um, I think some of the old models uh, where if you joined a union, you could rely that there was a volunteer rep in your workplace. Those are the things that don't feel like they work uh, for the workplace as it is now. They still work really well for big workplaces and for cohesive workplaces, but for atomised workplaces, not so much. But I'm, I'm going to a little bit use the get out of saying we're doing a big project on this at the moment uh, because I think there needs to be quite a lot of detailed work uh, to work out how you could do sort of sector approaches. Um, What I I would say is the reason places like Sweden, which we've talked about, um, and Austria, where there's 90% union density, get those levels of density is because they take those sort of sector approaches that bring the benefits of trade unionism to the group of workers who most need them. And what are the other ideas? Feel free to pitch in anybody here. What are the other ideas that we should be thinking about? I think as well as a um, a right to physical access, I think we need to be thinking about digital rights of, of access. And I, I think that's um, particularly uh, important given the changes that we're, we're seeing in the labour market, which uh, Antonia mentioned, so that, um, uh, you know, the, the rise of kind of platform uh 
employers uh, where you have no office, you have no factory gates, you yeah. have nowhere physically for a union to recruit. You might be working from home. And you might, and you may never meet uh, nor know of your 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 fellow employees. I mean. I, they're not designated as employees, but uh, we, your fellow workers, and they are workers at Uber and uh, um, Deliveroo. Um, and if you are, have no way of um, kind of finding your, your colleagues, um, you no way of communicating with them, then there's no way uh, of being able to collectively organise and push for better terms and conditions and push for better rates. And that's in the employer's interest, having an atomized workforce. So we think digital rights of access could help address that imbalance. I think one thing on that, though, one thing we see is a lot of these networks actually already exist. So if you work in the remote Amazon warehouse, you've got a WhatsApp group for um, sharing lifts into work because there's no bus service. So people are just coming up with them sort of off their own back. Exactly, or Facebook groups. They're very informal networks that are being used for quite, you know, mundane, like getting to work, practical things that you can start to use for collective action. That's what we're seeing some of the organised petitions and surveys being shared through, and that's where a lot of our growth comes from, these kind of existing online networks. And I think, so we've talked about some of the things that need to happen that government could do uh, to help promote trade unionism and get wider coverage of collective bargaining. Uh, And we've talked about some of the laws that need to get out of the way to help unions do their job better. Um, But I think the thing we haven't talked about is how unions themselves need to change uh, for the workplaces that we'd like to organise in now. And I say this as someone who is a lifelong union member uh, and joined uh, on my first day in work and is really proud to work for this union movement Uh, and to work for my General Secretary, Francis O'Grady. I think the union movement uh, needs to change uh, in a number of directions in order to meet the challenges of the modern workplace. The the place I would start, first of all, is about digital. Um, And I'll give you an example. uh, my my missus booked our holiday and I owed her £600 and I put my thumb on my banking app and I transferred it. It took about 30 seconds. Um, I moved address and so um, I needed to change my address with my union. It took me four phone calls. Someone who wasn't as committed... Uh, we won't name union. the union. We I'm won't name, the, name union. the union. Um, <laughs> someone who isn't as committed to the union probably would have got lost. I think we need to um, we need to catch up. with the experience that ordinary people get from the people who provide services uh, and organisations that they interact with in the rest of their lives. Joining a union should be as easy as signing up to get Netflix and you should be able to engage with your union in the ways that you want to, which may be the phone for some people and definitely will include wherever possible face-to-face with an actual rep when you've got a problem, uh, but should also include an absolutely brilliant digital offer. So that for me is one of the things that needs to change. And building on that, um, we've heard some really scary membership figures in the course of this podcast so far, but the one that really scares me is that 6.5% of 21 to 30-year-olds in the private sector are members of a trade union so we are you would be very unlikely um, to meet a group of young people and find someone in the private sector who's a union member now that feels like a burning platform to me um, and it is as a friend and a champion of the movement that I say that Um, and that's why uh, over at the TUC um, one of the things we've started to do is to build uh, an innovation program to help create a model of trade unionism that works for those 20-somethings who are working in the private sector on low to medium wages. They basically work in retail, hospitality and social care. So we know where they are. Um, they're not in unions. About half of them have got kids already. Um, they're, as I say, on low to medium wages. 
we've been we've done about a year and a half of research into their lives alongside those young workers. I took a load of my general secretaries to East London to live their lives for a day, which was brilliant. Confiscated the mobile phone uh, and confiscated their uh, bank cards, gave them an Oyster card and made them pretend to be 20-somethings working in a warehouse. That was a really good day. Um, and we are going to build an offer from from the ground up that works for them. And how will that offer be different, do you think? So I think the offer will be different because it's digital first. Yeah. Um, the offer will be different because we have heard what young workers tell us they want and we're going to build that, not what activists, brilliant activists, by the way, but activists in their 40s and 50s want and what works for and them. Sorry, and that's different. Young workers want something different in what way? Uh, they want, so they prioritise they prioritise slightly different things. If you ask them what their bargaining priorities are, the top two things that came back, obviously, pay is top but second uh, is around hours third is around rude and abusive customers fourth was around um, mums and dads needing better help to balance work and childcare. you know that was a different set of priorities to what you get if you ask some of our older cohorts um, they also they also don't work in places with volunteer reps so all the things that we've relied on in the past but like, they're, they're people who volunteer who are sort of voluntary yeah. people who are who recruit for the union. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, So all the things we've relied on in the past, actually having someone ask you to join the union when you sign up, when you start a new job, they don't work for this group. So we need to build something that is targeted around what they're interested in. And the most resonant thing that has come back is we want to get on in life. We don't know how we're going to get out of this minimum wage job or this just above minimum wage job to perhaps a first tier uh, shift supervisor, so forth. So... This group are telling us that's what they want. Historic strength of the trade union movement. We've always taught people to read and write and do maths. Now we can help people get on in life in the way that's bright for the modern world. And that's that's the thing that we're building. I wish I could tell you exactly what it looks like. But one of the joys of an innovation programme, as well as the risks, is you're building it as you're going, testing it with your users. The TUC is 150 um, in the first week of June, and I'm really hoping that something is going to be ready to show everybody then. This cultural challenge, which Antonia has raised. Yeah, so um, it's something we see absolutely. So half of our workers are under 30 um, who are using the organised platform. And one of the things we're really seeing is they really like, they talk in different language. Um, so it's language that I wouldn't use. Um, so one of the things about our Jeff terms... would use it actually. It's borderline <laughs> millennial. I think this is nonsense, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, I know. We had the three of us are borderline millennials. All millennials. We had a, we had an angry email about it this week. I don't know whether you saw. <laughs> it's it's to be a borderline millennial <laughs> for weeks. The joke, <laughs> keeps the joke is wearing thin. You I, think. Keep... I mean, my mum crossed her legs for eleven days to make sure I was an eighties baby, not a seventies baby. <laughs> and so borderline millennial is me, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. As an actual millennial. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so the key thing is speaking in Jeff's language. And <laughs> uh, the the surveys they build um, to collect the experiences of their colleagues are in their language. So we had a campaign at River Island, which was retail workers, mainly under 25. What I would have called it is a flexible working campaign. They called it Let Us Swap Our Shifts. And because it was in their language, you get right. a lot more people flocking into it. And I think that's a really key thing for the union movement mm. to take on board is the language they're using needs to be led by the, the workers themselves and I think that's quite a different shift because it feels quite risky to kind of pass that on you want to control the narrative but actually there's more power in devolving that that's really good and I think I mean the the work this kind of innovation work the reason I think that's so important is because beyond the kind of overall numbers which are frightening enough as they are lie the fact that the people who could most benefit from um 
being a member of a union and having the protection that that entails are currently least likely to be members. So um, if you're low paid, you're less likely to be a union member. If you've got low levels of uh, qualifications, you're less likely to be a union member. If you're uh, in a low paid uh, industry or if you're in an industry or occupation that's more vulnerable um, to automation, you're less likely to be uh, a union member. And so there needs to be, um, we think that there needs to be a, a kind of a shift in the balance of power and a level of the playing field, leveling of the playing field to help unions uh, organise and, and represent uh, workers. But what unions are doing does need to change to keep up um, with with the modern world. Lots and lots of unions are innovating and experimenting, but we think there needs to be more support for doing that. And so one of the things we're looking at is a uh, we're, we're trying to come up with a brand name, but a kind of digital uh, innovation fund for for unions. And this builds on the the union modernisation fund, which the previous Labour government had, which um, supported unions to to modernise. It did what it said on the on the tin. Um, and now we see technology is being used largely, with the uh, you know exception of Nat's work and, and and some others. It's being used largely as a tool for the atomization and exploitation of workers. So we think more needs to be done to invest in in technology and support unions to rethink their approaches and their techniques and design new tools to help them organise workers and use that technology as a, a tool for control. Last question, which we tr- has become a tradition. Um, we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy, uh, which is Jeff being the supreme ruler, even yeah. more than he is at the moment. I'm a very uh, benign dictator. Uh, I don't think that's true, actually. Um, <laughs> it's because it's, I'm lazy and it's too much effort not being benign. Maybe that's true. Uh, so you're appointed to head the new Ministry of Labour uh, in the Jeffocracy. Um, I think you've given, you've sort of told us quite a lot about what you would do, but what's the sort of one thing that you do? You, 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 the one you, sort of top-down thing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so you know, you've sort of, you've got the job, Jeff has sort of given you the seals of office, you're, it's a three-way job share, um, and, you know, you're, you kind of you go into the office, you've got, the civil servants will come to you, what, what's the one thing you do? I give unions the right to go into every workplace uh, because that would help unions get new members. Uh, but it would also mean that there was someone in that workplace who could spot when things were really wrong. And that deterrent effect might help make some workplaces more safe, uh, but it would also help strengthen the union movement and it would stop employers keeping us outside the gates. I'd build on that and I'd offer, um, so one thing we do organise is a weekly survey of our membership. So we ask 10% what's going on in their workplace. I'd do that nationally so that you're building up a snapshot every week and you'd be able to spot and proactively see at at source the problems and then take action to fix it. I would trial auto-enrolment on uh, platforms. So um, I would require Uber and Deliveroo when they sign up a worker, and I use that term deliberately, um, to uh, automatically enrol uh, those workers into a a workplace union um, which means that they can uh, collectively push for better terms and condition and a better share of the wealth that they're generating um, which can you know turn this uh, technology from a tool of atomization and exploitation into one uh, supporting workers to uh, exert their rights and, and gain control over their work great i'll phone you as soon as i'm in office is that just a is that a real promise or is that just a promise promise? I think when somebody says I'll phone you, I think we, we all know what's implied there. What? It's a real promise. <laughs> right, okay, good. <laughs> Listen, I, I honestly would say that that was such an inspiring discussion. I mean that about a subject where lots of people feel incredibly gloomy, 
I, I can honestly yeah, say absolutely. that was one of the yeah. most inspiring discussions that we've had. Well, in which case, can I abuse the privilege Go of on. being on your podcast, Ed and Jeff, and say if anyone feels like that they need to join a union as a result of listening to this podcast, they should go to the TUC's website, stick join a union into Google, will land on the union finder. It will help you work out which union is the right one for you. It's a really good idea. Get involved in your union. We need more members who are going to be part of making the union movement one that meets the challenges of the modern world. And it's great. And I'd jump in on that as well and say join the organised community. So head to organised.org.uk, check us out, join us, get involved. Okay. Uh, Nat, Antonia, Joe, absolutely brilliant discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think of that discussion? Well, I was inspired by it. I th- so was I. I. I came into this thinking, like I said, union to a lot of people is this throwback, is this dirty word. And even though union membership is so low amongst people in the 20s, I think the figure was 6.5%, something like that. That, that. Which is quite a shocking figure. It is, but that research, that people of that age don't have the baggage that other people do about the word union. They haven't been poisoned by the, the media or past events that they you know they're into the idea of collectivism they just don't necessarily associate it with unions it shows there's like massive room for growth there i think that's the point of the podcast you know the, our three guests were i just found them incredibly inspiring because they all in their different ways were thinking not oh this is all really difficult too difficult to confront you know it's like there, there's things we can do you know, Nat with her, uh, the organised platform, reaching out to people in new ways. Antonia trying to sort of shake things up at the unions. And Joe with his auto-enrolment idea, which I am like massively, uh, I think is massively exciting. Because I think it's got like scale. It's like it's like a big, big thing. It would make a big, big difference in this whole debate. It's genuinely exciting. As they were leaving, Ed told them they should form a band and go on tour. Definitely. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So if you've got views on what you heard on the show, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast and indeed on Instagram. 
Or you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. This one comes from Ben Fisher, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, this week's podcast was definitely my favourite so far as it touched on a keen area of interest for me, the often overlooked bus policy. It prompted me to write him for the very first time as an adult. The last time I wrote a letter to a programme was Blue Peter. So you're in good company. Maybe we need badges for people. Yes. That's a good idea, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For somebody who makes an excellent suggestion, they can have a gold badge. I mean, what can the, what can the benefits be? Because with a blue Peter badge, you get into museums and art galleries free, even though I think they are free. No, anyway, I think it's just like a little badge that you can wear, like a little, little lapel badge. Aha! Uh-huh. As a secret. What do you reckon, team Emma? Great idea. Yeah. All right, we're going to do it. So, what does that mean? That if people email in and we use it, and we use it. I, th- I think there's there's some thrashing out of fi- finer detail to be done here. But... Okay, but do details TBA. Yes, exactly. Maybe TBC too. Yeah. Um, TBC ben... and A. <laughs> uh, ben continues, like many people, the issue of buses isn't just abstract policy for me, but a daily source of frustration. My partner and I live in Leeds and don't own a car. The thing is, I bought Rosie Winterton a snow leopard for Christmas. <laughs> what? So the the former chief whip, who's my Doncaster neighbour, Rosie Winterton, said yes. to me that she really thought the WWF, that's not the World Wrestling Federation, <laughs> snow leopards were really cute. Um, and, you know, it was like protect a snow leopard. So I bought her a subscription and she got a cuddly snow leopard in the post. But I had to sort of download the certificate. <laughs> so I'm sort of wondering whether this has relevance to the bad situation. I was thinking, you know, maybe we could sort of do some DIY aspect to, to save on the administration. You said we should get a badge-making machine. Well, no, it's just I'm thinking, felt would we have to have a self-addressed envelope? Um, you know, there's kind of quite a lot of complexity, obviously. So it's sort of... I was you thinking- see, this is why I said <laughs> we need to thrash out the details. I then move on to Ben's email, and all of a sudden I can hear you wittering on about a snow leopard. Poor Ben. This is the first time he's written to a program okay, since Let's go back to, the ba- back to Ben. <laughs> um, so all of the issues you highlighted this week resonated so well. Our day-to-day travel frustrations. Buses to work are extremely unreliable whilst coming back any time after 6pm risks random cancellations and even more erratic timetables. But our only other options are taxis or an hour or more's walk each way, despite the bus stops being equidistant from our house. The price of a single with the same company ranges wildly from £1.80 to £3 for essentially the same trip. Hardly a good situation for encouraging more people to take public transport. And yet the biggest investment Leeds is getting from the government is HS2, which is all, all, all but useless for the majority of residents like me living our lives day to day within the city. Yep, it's a really important email. Uh, in case you wondered, I didn't download the certificate for Rosie Winston, and she got the cuddly toy in the post, the snow <laughs> leopard, and she thought it was just some free random gift of cuddly toy, so she gave it away to her niece or nephew. Uh, and so then I said to her, what, did you get a snow leopard for Christmas? And she said, yes, I thought everyone got one. So, <laughs> so I had to explain that everyone hadn't got one, and I would bought the bloody snow leopard. <laughs> Uh, sorry. I can't quite work out whether all's well that ends well in that story it or is, not. It, she it, now it's... knows that I did buy her a snow leopard. Right. right. <laughs> Back to buses. <laughs> 
the next one comes from Liam Dodd, not about snow leopards, about the publicly owned bus services. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I just finished listening to the latest podcast about public transport services. And as someone who's lived in continental Europe since 2014, I have to agree with the sentiments supporting public or city ownership. I was in Paris for three years, which is similar to London, with RATP owning the entire bus, metro and tram network. For a city its size, it is common for Europe, but with the additional benefits of rail connections outside of Paris being owned by the state NCF, ESNCF, it made it even more convenient. I've since become moving myself across to Austria, spending a lot of time in Linz, a city in Upper Austria, with a population of 270,000, about the same as Derby. It, for its size, it has an amazing public transport system, which is owned by the city holding firm Linz AG. It runs four trams, 24 bus lines, and the Postling Bergbahn, which is the mountain tram and a series of trolley buses. The more time spent in Austria, the more unnecessary a car seems, and I'm borderline car nut with an almost obsessive interest in Formula One and motorsports. Thank you for taking the time to read this message, and thank you for your work on the podcast. I think there's a point there about Europe, that the rest of Europe just does a lot better than us, lots of places. And I think a few people made this point on social media. People made the point about Edinburgh. Um, we'll give a shout out to that, about Reading, um, and also about the rest, that we should look at what's happening in the rest of Europe. And before we move on from buses, can I just say to, can I just say thank you to everybody who on social media made a mock-up of what Ed and myself would look like as the cast of On The Buses. Oh, did they? Yeah, we had some good ones. Really? I didn't yeah. see that. So, uh, so for next week's Photoshop project, I'd like to see Ed riding on the back of a snow leopard to <laughs> Rosie Winston's house. Excellent. That's the challenge. Um, now, the next one is about you, comrade. Okay. Um, it comes from James Lloyd. Dear Jeff, and write on Ed, subject, Jeff is not a borderline millennial. Borderline is in brackets. I really hope that Jeff can be weaned off his obsession about being a more borderline millennial. Both Jeff and Ed are very much Generation X, early to mid-60s to the early 1980s, dash Wikipedia. Just like myself, born 1986, and my wife, born 1990, really rubbing it in he is, are both very much millennials. I prefer the term Gen Y. Being trans age is not a recognised thing. But it should be. So please, Jeff, stop trying to hijack the struggles of Gen Y for yourself. After all, watching Seinfeld is not much of a millennial thing to do, although a few outliers, I'm sure, do. You're just not one of them. Otherwise, a big fan of the podcast. Keep up the interesting discussions with experts from around the world. I recently moved to Perth, Australia. So please add add that to your list of international tour dates. All the best, James. P.S. I am aware of how ridiculous the artificial constructions of generations are, although I have been convinced of these categories having some meaning to researchers. But if you're going to reinforce this mostly arbitrary categorization, please get it right. Dr. James P.B. Lloyd. Well, I want to see. Uh, is his, he a relative? I want to see his doctorate. I want to see a certificate. Is he a relative? <laughs> and if he is a doctor, I've got several ailments that I'd like to. Ask yeah, him I bet you do. No, 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 no relation. No, no. But, uh, but I think we should make it clear for the record that it's a sort of a bit of witty, witty repartee, isn't it? Really, this just, borderline millennial. Just thing. a little ongoing thing. It's a little I mean, ongoing. I mean, sort the, of, the best jokes I find are of, the ones you have to explain. Yeah, it's that they're it's a just joke. About a bit of a sort of frisson of yeah, you know, yeah. age resentment. Yeah. You know, I'm a bit older, yeah. etc. Yeah. I've got a thing about it. I'm yeah. hurtling towards fifty. Mm. You're like a long way away from fifty. Hurtling towards forty-five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's sort of just a bit of a. And not just that, it's we've badinage. Had, yeah, it is badinage, and not just that, we've had borderline millennial merchandise made and we just need to shift it before we move on exactly email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast
All right, here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Jake Yap. Hello. 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 Hi. Thanks for having me. And and you are the good work that we're doing here on the podcast. You you are doing similar work elsewhere and improving the world. Constantly. Constantly. I mean, sometimes in small ways, sometimes uh, in a slightly self-indulgent way on Radio 4. I'm, I'm writing a series for them at the moment called Jake Yap Saves Humanity in 28 Minutes. I mean, it's small-scale stuff. <laughs> like... Um, Pop music. It's not exactly. Does humanity need saving from pop music? Yes, but yeah, you can. Well, you you, you can get into it, and you discover you, you can get angry about things. Like in what? pop music, did you know that uh, there's like a thousand pop songs at the moment that have this oh 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 kind of is motif called, and riff? Is it right? called the millennial yelp? It might be called that. Yes, I don't know, but it's 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 the major fifth, major third. Oh, right. and. They deliberately put it in pop songs solely so that you'll go, oh, that sounds familiar. I like this song. Wow. And they, it's like, it's kind of like fast food. It's like McDonald's. Oh, uh, oh. Uh. There you go. Everyone loves you. <laughs> That's all you have to do. That's a very good millennial yell. Thank you. Try yeah. it on the bus. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jake. So you brought in some uh, ideas, which potentially reasons to be cheerful. What's your first one? Um, my first idea, and I think this is this is rad. This is fun. Um, rad is if that's, yeah, a, sure. that's the sort of word that you would use. I'm rad, down with rad, the kids. Rad yap. We'll call you. From yeah, yeah. On. I'm going to be rad Miliband. Yeah, right? good. Um, well, once you reach retirement age, you know you've spent a lifetime paying into society, haven't you? You've paid your taxes and stuff. Um, I think you should be allowed to have a little fun. I, I feel like if you've reached retirement age, it should be legal for you to take any drug you please. Just go go hog wild. Have a great time. And, and in exchange for not voting for Brexit, basically. Yeah. Well, in other go. words, it's like you can have the drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, my, well, don't, <laughs> don't impose your views on yeah, the younger you, generation. You lose any eligibility yeah. to vote or drive, yeah. but you can do whatever drugs you want. Look, the NHS is in crisis. What's the greatest burden on the NHS? I mean, I don't want to be horrible, but it's it's old people dying slowly. Now, if, God forbid, your grandmother got off her head on, <laughs> I don't know, PCP and decided she could jump off Tower Bridge and fly, I mean, it's a glorious finale. She's had a great time. Not a bad idea, actually. I, I, I sort of buy this. Yeah, you, you do. Awesome. Basically, you get your bus pass. <laughs> you get your free TV license. Yeah, yeah. And you get the free drug laws. Sure, why not? Drug-laced Werther's Originals. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all right. Well, Is that one in? Amazing. I'm amazed that that got past... uh... It's going to be a private member's bill that I bring forward in the coming months. (laughs) The House of Lords, they'd be all over that, wouldn't they? Exactly. Right? Self-interest. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I have to declare an interest. I am the dealer for it. Uh, What's your next one? Okay, well, this one again. This one's this one's not like very funny, but uh, yeah, I, I've got an opportunity to talk about yeah. it, which is uh, uh, use solar power, right? Not a solar power. Use it to make hydrogen. Like I don't, I'm not a science person, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that all you do is you get a solar panel and stick the wires into a bucket of water, and it splits the oxygen and the hydrogen. Right, and you just you catch it in a jar or something. You know, obviously put the lid on; it's flammable. But um, and what are we going to do with the hydrogen? Right, right. Huff it. No, that you um, <laughs> balloon. No, you you can then burn it. 
to generate electricity. Right? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's rather pointless. Why not just use the solar power? Right? Rather than, why are you making this sound? What's wrong you're with putting you? putting a middleman in there. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Um, the point is... I'm not sure he was thinking what that. We're always told, what we're always told, the trouble is... What they always say about renewables is, oh, they're very unreliable and, uh, you know, the sun's not necessarily shining when you want to watch television at night. No. So if you've got hydrogen, you can then burn it whenever you need it to meet demand. Is this like a version of batteries? It's a way of storing energy. Yes. Absolutely. So as, as former Environment Secretary... Yeah. Maybe, and energy, yes. Yeah. Are you... Are you uh, I've been waiting years. It's for way it. outside the envelope of my expertise. <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, I was lost in about the sort of third second of the explanation. What's your scientific background? None. But the point is... <laughs> what I'm... I'm just thinking that if 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 this seems this obvious to you... Yeah. Why hasn't a scientist... It's so way above your level of knowledge. Uh, or uh, yours, for that matter. Um, and it's not a... like I was former Environment exactly. Energy Secretary or anything. I feel exposed in this conversation. <laughs> I think it's got to be. I think we've got to send it out for okay, listeners. Don't you think? Let's send it out for scrutiny. Yeah. Okay. How exciting! All right. What have we got next? Um, issue a moratorium on the manufacturing of hair conditioner for at least two years because you all have like eight bottles of that, <laughs> like eight half full bottles. Every shower cubicle, there's like eight half full bottles. Hair conditioner. Conditioner. Not yeah. not stuff you put into shape and style sculpt. Oh, what's wrong with that? I've got like one, maybe two pots of product. Wax or sort of clay it's, or it's a molding cream? I mousse? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> How do you mousse? know this? Oh, you don't know about solar hydrogen, but you know about hair products. There's a modern politician for you. So, so but there's, there's always conditioner. And I think I'm guilty of this. I buy conditioner and then I don't use it. I just use shampoo. Never, tell I'm, me right now, in your shower cubicle here, if you've got one, or by your bar. Yeah, yeah. How many bottles, half empty bottles of conditioner are there? Deep existential question, I would say. What is the point of conditioner? Would you like me to go and count? Yeah, I would actually. I, I just, in the little <laughs> break, you. I have no bottles of conditioner because I don't use conditioner. That's amazing. You've got beautiful boyish hair. Oh, thank you very much. What do you, and what products? That's the products. Don't mind my asking, what products do you use? It's, it's cream, not wax. Oh, it's or a cream. Is it a yeah. creme? Or a cream? I think it's probably a creme. A creme. Yes. And does it smell of anything? Can I? Nope. He's back, he's back. It's okay. odourless. Odourless <laughs> creme. <laughs> that sounds horrific. It's two. There you go! Your, your point is proven. Two? Yes. And do you use conditioner? I don't use conditioner. No. I'm just saying, let's use up what we've got before we make any more. Okay. It's, okay. Good. it's a good philosophy for life. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Uh, did you have another idea? Compel the royal family to live off whatever we choose to set as the minimum amount of benefit available to ordinary people in this country. So wow. you, can, you can put whatever level you want, but it has to be the same for the royal family as it is for the poorest right. people in Britain. You're like, oh, God. I mean, my instinct one. is that I would agree with this, but I've recently been watching The Crown and I think it would be a less lavish watch if you <laughs> yeah, impose yeah. this rule. The crud. Yeah, the cardboard crap. I don't know. I can see there's a lot of hesitation. Some people are you gunning for a gunning for a title, gunning for an honour. A little bit, I think so. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah, yeah. You, what do you think would be good? Oh. Well, you were quite oh. <laughs> barren. Will you be a lord one day by default? No, no, no. Why not? Because I don't want to go to the House of Lords. Definitely. Why? Not. What's it like? Does it smell of wee? <laughs> are they all off their head on drugs? Well, they will be after <laughs> yeah, your yeah, 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 free yeah. drugs for all thing 
No, no, no. It's just I prefer the House of Commons. But you, you want to do that forever? Well, I don't know. You don't think it's forever. Ed, forever. Your eyes are telling me a different story. Nope. Your eyes. Nope. Your eyes have a sort of... Lord Miliband. Your eyes are saying, I'm not comfortable with this conversation. I am totally comfortable. Yeah. Your eyes are saying, I don't... I don't. I'm looking you in the eye yeah. and saying... Your eyes are saying... I'll shake your hand and say, I will not go you... to the House of Lords. Okay. Oh, my God, he did. I shook it. I hands with it. Maybe. He had his fingers Definitely not. Nope. Nothing <laughs> crossed. <laughs> Really, you should take your clothes off nope. if, we're, if we're to know that nothing's nope. crossed. No crossing. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to do all of this. I'd love to be a lord, lord in it about the place. Well, I think you I, can become the lord. Yeah, okay. Who you can we, just buy who, a title, who do we speak you? to? Baron well, can... Lloyd of Stoke Newington. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd take that. I mean, it is a very odd thing because when I was leader of the Labour Party, I used to give people peerages, you see. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, and it was the most extraordinary thing ringing people up. I mean, I remember ringing up Doreen Lawrence who's an incredibly deserving peer. Not one of the fake ones. Not one of the fake yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. And telling her about it. And she was slightly disbelieving of sort of... Did she think it was John Coulshaw or something? <laughs> well, I don't quite know what she thought, but she kind of took... She needed some time to think about what it all meant. Do you feel that anybody in your orbit when you were leader was angling for a peerage from you? Well, I, I I had a strong sense of that when I did that interview with you in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of, I could sort of glean. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's when you kind of said to me at the end, you know, I'd look good in ermine. Yeah. I'm also a lollipop lady twice I'd a week. Serve you loyally. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, apart yeah, apart yeah, from apart you, from that, no. No, yeah. not, not, not really. Right. No, but it was a very strange feeling because you'd be ringing people up to know that you were completely changing their life and that you'd be deciding that they would sort of rule the country in some sense. Mm. And it was totally a ridiculous system. It was the most ridiculous thing I had to yeah. do in a way. Because and why should I be yeah. nominating somebody to the House of Lords? How many would you get a year? Well, it basically be Cameron would decide that a fair division was he would get 50 and I'd get three, basically. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, that sounds fair. Um, that was his Italian sense of fairness. <laughs> uh, uh, um, so um, I think the maximum we got was eight right at the beginning. Um, and then wow. I got another six or seven, I think, later on. Did anyone yelp when you rang them? Yeah, was it like winning the postcode lottery? So it was like, oh, my God! No, most people were completely dumbfounded, actually. Right. Most people would be... I think ex-politicians were less dumbfounded, but most people were sort of Mm. slightly kind of... They took some time to sort of process it, I think. Mm. All right, so I think is that, is that probably I don't know. Yeah, you've, yeah, like I gone. really think you should be in the House of Lords. I think that is the answer. Where were you? Like I was there. I was. Oh. <laughs> uh, Jake, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And that was our podcast. And let's start a podcasters union. Definitely. I want to be father of the chapel. You, you're on. You can be shop steward. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm electing you. Thank you very much. I'm seconding me. Can yep. I do that? Is that Definitely. allowed? Yeah, I'll yep. second you. Um, all out. I think that's sort of old speak. <laughs> okay.
<laughs> it's not doing it's not doing any favours to this idea of modernising the not, union movement. Not, is no, it? no, yeah. it isn't. Uh, we should mention more live shows coming up. Yes, Friday, April twenty seventh, we're going to be at the Sheffield Festival of Debate. I've said before we're going to be also doing an event in Doncaster. We're we're hoping to be at the Cast Theatre, the brilliant theatre in Doncaster. Hopefully, a date to be announced soon. And uh, the same goes for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We're going to do hopefully two shows there on that first weekend. Um, so if you are planning a trip to Edinburgh and you're thinking, I wonder if uh, I wonder if Reasons to be Cheerful is going to be there. We are, and it's going to be that first weekend. Great. Should we thank our guests? Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank Antonia Bantz, Head of Campaigns and Communication at the TUC, Nat Wally from the Organised Platform, and Joe Dromey from IPPR. And thanks to Jake Yap for being so great with his ideas for potential reasons to be cheerful. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Weissbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed made our music. James Deacon did the eye dance. And Emily Power made our artwork. Right, we need to get out of here to uh, to to get tobogganing before it goes dark. Yeah, we need to get get out of town. As they used to say on Play School when we were young, it's time for us to go now. He's not been, and never has been, a borderline millennial. He's been the man who thinks a snow leopard is an appropriate Christmas present. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.